Hi, I'm Arlen Walker and I am live from Pelham's Wasteland and today I have got another overview for you guys, which I'm pretty excited about because this overview is going to be for da, 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 face adventures in Middle Earth. This is a 5e compatible version of the the game. Essentially, so we, we should start with a little bit about the kind of publishing history of this thing. Um, Cubicle 7, who published this version, um, bought the rights for or, or became the publisher for the One Ring RPG, which I'm also going to do an overview of, um, and basically uh, decided at some point along the way, or it may have been or in their original plans entirely, that they would create a 5e-based version of basically all of the stuff for One Ring. And that uh, that would be, that that presumably is a way to um, entice players who are used to 5e to come play their game and to give people a chance to play um, a more... Uh, an experience of the game that does not use some of the basic assumptions that uh, regular 5e does um, in order to play a version of the game that is closer to the Middle-earth stories in, in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in particular. Um, obviously, there's also the Silmarillion. This is not a game that is really designed for playing um, characters of Silmarillion power scale. Although if you get to, you know, like a level 15 or 20 warrior, obviously they're going to be pretty powerful and uh, might be able to chop down hordes of orcs in a sort of Silmarillion style. Um, or if your comparison is the movies versus the books, the, the, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films, um, this version of the game gets compared to the films a lot relative to the One Ring, which gets compared to the books a lot uh, for a number of reasons. This uh, 5e Adventures in Middle-Earth is a little more action-oriented than um, the One Ring is in a lot of ways. One Ring is a very kind of quiet, contemplative game, in my opinion, in, in many of its uh, mechanics versus this... Um, a little more action-oriented, a little more combat-oriented, um, as you would sort of expect with uh, a game based on the 5th the edition chassis. Um, so today, what I'm going to talk about is basically this book, The, the Player's Guide for Adventures in Middle-Earth, and this book, The Lore Master's Guide, because these are the two core books for Adventures in Middle-Earth, and you don't need anything else other than these two books and the 5e system reference document, um, which even the, the books do a good job of including most of the stuff from the re system reference document that you would need. Um, I think it is, it's sometimes just easier, especially if I'm playing online, you know, on a roll 20, for me, what I'll do is, you know, pull up the, the SRD for like conditions um just to see what they what they say what are the levels of exhaustion all of that sort of stuff instead of looking it up in the book um but that's just me 
So I have these two books. I also have, I don't have absolutely everything for Adventures in Middle-Earth 5e, unfortunately, although I've been playing it more and um, I'm running it on um, Thursday nights for my family group, my my um, nuclear family, my mom and dad and little sister and grandfather, um, I've gotten them to play RPGs and we have been playing Adventures in Middle-Earth and it's been a ton of fun. Um, and that is sort of convincing me that maybe I need to, to get the full line. Unfortunately, all of this stuff is out of print now, so it is kind of expensive. Um, there may, uh, there probably are ways to get pirated copies of this stuff. And I have PDF versions of everything that I purchased, but, um, I don't have print copies of everything. But there's a couple of other books in addition to the uh, Player's Guide and the Lore Master's Guide. And they're basically divided into two different groups. A couple of books um, sort of blend the, the lines between the groups. But basically there are region source books, which give you information about a particular region of Middle-earth. Talk about, you know, here's what... Um, this, you know, this area, this part of the world is like, here's important personalities, here's places of interest, all of that sort of stuff. Really great if you wanted to do a, a pretty sandboxy um, campaign in Adventures Middle-Earth, which you could totally do. Um, and so there is the Rovanian Region Guide, which um, you can see that's, you know, uh, a couple of dwarves being carried by a great eagle, and I'm gonna set this behind me so that I can, hopefully the, the stack will stay in shot. There is the Lonely Mountain Region Guide, which covers the area around the Lonely Mountain and Dale. Um, there is the Rivendell Region Guide, which covers the area around Rivendell and kind of a, a chunk of Eriador. And then there's the Breland Region Guide, which is not pictured because I don't own it um, in in print. So, um, and that one's a little different because that includes a couple of adventures. The other thing that they did, in addition to region guides, region guides also have a number of optional rules or um, supplemental rules. So, for instance, the Rivendell Region Guide actually has um, a whole new character culture. You can play as a, a um, an elf of Rivendell with the Rivendell Region Guide. Um, there are a bunch of playable cultures in the base game, um, but Lonely Mountain, I believe, adds Iron Hills Dwarves because Lonely Mountain Dwarves are in the base game. Rovanian, I don't think, adds any playable cultures, but I don't remember for certain. It definitely has some alternate rules in it, though. Like, the Lonely Mountain Guide also has rules for dragons. If you want to throw a dragon at your players, um, there's rules for dragons. And the, the rules for, for enemies are actually really cool in Adventures in Middle-Earth, and I like them a lot. And I'm going to talk some about that this session um, of the, the overview and some in the next one where I talk about all these extra books. Anyway, in addition to region guides, they also have adventure books. Um, this is Wilderland Adventures, which is all in the area of, um, Rovanian, um, 
in Mirkwood and in the Vale of the Anduin and a little bit in on the other side of Mirkwood over in um, the area of the Running River. Not not really anything in the Erebor area, but there is an Erebor Adventures book for that. And there's an Ariador Adventures book. And like I mentioned, the Breland Region Guide actually has three adventures in it. So um, there's a bunch of pre-written material for your campaigns. Now, we are actually playing this right now, the Wilderland Adventures. We're only on the second adventure. Um, but Wilderland Adventures is really cool because it takes your characters from level one up to level seven. Seven adventures, each of which in our game, it's probably going to take three or four sessions per adventure. Um, so three or four sessions at each level up to level seven. And then after you finish Wilderland Adventures, the Ariador Adventures actually carry on from the end of Wilderland Adventures. So they're the next set of levels for another six adventures, I believe. And um, so you can play, the, the plan is to play essentially a full campaign first in the Wilderland dealing with the, the bad stuff there, and then second in Ariador, and that'll take us up to level like 13 or so. So a pretty good, a pretty solid, you know, not 1 to 20, but a pretty solid campaign. And then the final book that I have is sort of the outlier, and that is the Mirkwood campaign book. For the One Ring, there's the Darkening of Mirkwood campaign. This is the version of that for Adventures in Middle-Earth. Um, the Mirkwood campaign exists essentially because of a sort of question. And that question is, why isn't the, the North involved in the War of the Ring as we see it in the, um, the Lord of the Rings? And this campaign essentially tells the story of how the shadow is resurgent in Rovanian, in the southern Mirkwood area around Dol Gurdur, in the, the Withered Heath and the Iron Hills and all that sort of stuff. All of these places that we saw or heard about in The Hobbit that don't seem to contribute to the War of the Ring, the idea is, well, the Shadow is there too, and it's doing stuff, and that's why you know there isn't an army of Bayornings that marches down the Vale of Anduin, even though we hear, we hear a little bit about them in the Fellowship of the Ring, but there's not. Um, and we hear... You know, apparently, things have been going pretty good for them in the aftermath of the Battle of the Five Armies. And so the question is sort of, why Why don't they contribute? Um, and so the Mirkwood campaign is basically the darkening of Mirkwood. It's Dolgerdur rising again with um, the Nazgul. And so I believe there are, in the darkening of Mirkwood book, there definitely are. But I believe there are stats for um, Nazgul. Yeah. There's um, three Nazgul that um, are statted out. The Lieutenant of Dol Gordur, the Ghost of the Forest, and the Messenger of Mordor. And I'll show you uh, the Lieutenant of Dol Gordur in this. Hopefully you can see without the glare too bad. Yeah, looks pretty nasty. And I'm 90% I'm sure. Yeah, that's definitely um, John Hodgson's art. Um, a lot of the art in these Adventures in Middle-Earth books was originally in the One Ring books, um, but the art is great. Um, 
it, in my opinion, is uh, is uh, quite good um, art. Uh, a lot of it is by John Hodgson. Um, I don't think any of the covers are by John Hodgson, um, but a lot of the interior art is by him. Not all of it. Um, he has a very kind of distinctive, a sort of painterly kind of watercolory style. Um, very, very kind of soft and muted. Um, and I really like it. I think it really reflects the the kind of tone that they're going for in both The One Ring and Adventures in Middle-Earth. Um, but I know some people have expressed uh, that they dislike it. And if you dislike it, you will probably not like the art in these Adventures in Middle-Earth books very much. So that's a sort of buyer beware. Um, anyway, let us... That's almost 13 minutes of just discussion about the line. Let us get into what is actually in this book, and then, of course, what is actually in this book, the, the Loremasters book. Um, oh, there's also one thing that I also don't have is the Game Master screen, which comes with an adventure. Um, I, I have the PDF version of the Game Master screen, and it's pretty good. It's... Uh, it's good if you embrace the special mechanics that are going to be talked about in this player's guide. Um, it's less useful if you just want to play a sort of standard D&D adventure in Middle-earth. Um, but if you embrace journeys and audiences and all that sort of stuff, the, the, the screen is really good. And the, the adventure with the screen, I think, is really good, too. Um, I ran it this past Saturday for uh, one of my friends, one of my online friends and his son, uh, and we had a blast with it. It was a ton of fun. I, I very nearly killed his character um, unintentionally, but um, I uh, sicked a couple of wargs on him, and they, they rolled well, and that was almost it for Widuvin. Anyway, what do you get in the book? Well, first off, you get a map of the Wilderland, on the inside cover, and this is the player's map. Um, there's a player version and a GM version. The player version does not have regions marked out, and it doesn't have hexes, and it doesn't have danger levels for areas. So the player's map is essentially just what the player knows about this world. Um, they have to, you know, they they have heard stories about the danger of Middle Earth, but they uh, and for instance, like traveling along the Elf Path in Mirkwood, right here. They've heard stories about that, but they don't have like a mechanical number for that. The Game Master's Guide, or the Lore Master's Guide, on the inside covers. Well, this one is the, the inside cover of the front is Lake Town. And then on the back inside cover, this is a hex map with information about... So um, all of these, there's a, a code here. Basically, the color refers to the difficulty of traveling in that area, whereas the um, little symbol, and you can you can probably barely see it, there's a little uh, a white circle with a symbol in it, which refers to the sort of nature of that area. So, for instance, nor Northern Mirkwood, where you would take the elf path, if you were going from Esgaroth, Lake Town, up here, all the way to the forest gate, or even to like Bayorn's house right here, what you do, you just count hexes, and based on the number of hexes, that determines the journey, and based on the um, 
difficulty of each area that determines and the nature of each area that'll determine the peril rating and the number of journey events and all that sort of stuff to figure out how your journey is going to work um and then there is a another thing that i don't have although i have it for the one ring um a lot of i have everything for the one ring so in some ways it feels silly to buy stuff for adventures in middle earth um that i already have for the one ring but anyway um another thing is the roads go ever on supplement which has a number of really beautiful maps and on the front side they are player maps and on the back side they are gm maps so you can spread out the player side maps and let the players pick out their route and then flip it over and do the hex counting and the little bit of math that you need to do for the peril rating and all of that sort of stuff and figure out what the journey is going to be like when you go on a journey. Because that's one of the big mechanics in Adventures in Middle-Earth is the journey mechanic. So, what do you get in the book? Well, you get a couple of big things. Um, I'm going to show you the table of contents. I'm not sure how much holding up the book to the camera I'm going to do. Um, for whatever reason, I felt like doing hold up the book to the camera instead of my normal uh, overview with the PDFs. But anyway, maybe to show off that I've got all these books and I spent too much money on all these books because I am a foolish person. Um... Anyway, the first section is 14 pages on Wilderland, um, just the area. Wilderland being the area from the Misty Mountains in the west to the river running in the east. So Mirkwood and the Vale of Anduin and Lake Town and Erebor and um, Dale, re reconstructed Dale and... Um, the Elven King's Halls in Mirkwood and Dulgardur in the south, and then down all the way to like Lorien, Lothlorien in um, the sort of southwest, and um, not all the way as far down as Rohan or Gondor, but um, that's that's Wilderland. That's that's what you see on the map, the player map. All right, the next section is sort of an overview of what is actually in the book, um, and then you have. Um, the three different parts of character creation. Um, culture, class, and background. And each of these is really important. So your culture is where you grew up, what culture you grew up in. The core book includes Bardings, who are people of Dale, Bayornings, Bayorn's people, Dunedain, um, Aragorn's people, uh, the Rangers of the North, Dwarves of the Lonely Mountain, Elves of Mirkwood, Hobbits of the Shire, Men of Bree, Men of the Lake, as in Lake Town, Men of Minas Tirith, as in Gondor, Riders of Rohan, and Woodmen of Wilderland, who are sort of in near next to the Bayornings, but not quite actual Bayornings. Um, and then you have classes, and there are, are six, right? Six, one, two three, four, five, six, yes, six classes um, that are, some of them are more based on the 5e classes, some of them are less based on the 5e classes. Um, and they all have some really cool kind of special mechanics. There's some, some nice tweaks 
to the base 5e classes, even the one. So there's the warrior, which is very similar to the fighter in base 5e. The slayer, which is very similar to the uh, the 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 barbarian, um, the one who rages. The slayer the slayer goes into a battle fury, right? They they rage. That's their thing. Whereas the warrior is sort of more of a kind of all around fighter. Um, but then you have the scholar who is a really interesting class um, for a number of reasons. The treasure hunter, the wanderer, and the warden. And each of these has kind of bits and pieces taken from base 5e classes or mechanics that are created wholesale for this game um, that they get. Um, so, for instance, the scholar. The scholar has the hands of a healer ability. So the scholar can, um, it's sort of a lay on hands thing. The scholar can touch a um, allied character and give them, I believe it is 1d8 plus their wisdom modifier hit points back, or plus their proficiency bonus hit points back, or they can um, spend 10 minutes tending to the character and they get 1d8 or as many d8s as their proficiency modifier plus their wisdom bonus. Um, hit points back. So basically, if you can sort of tend to the wounded, you can get hypothetically a fair number of hit points back um, after the fight without spending hit dice because the uh, scholars lay on hands ability, their, their hands of a healer ability recharges after every short rest. Now, short rests are a little harder to come by in Adventures in Middle Earth because one of the changes that this game makes is that short rests are basically an overnight in um, some place anywhere. An overnight anywhere, you get a good night's rest and you get your short rest. Long rests, on the other hand, are like a week of time spent in a sanctuary. So you have to be in a safe place and you have to spend at least like a week recovering for a long rest. So to get back your spent hit dice, to get back your um, long rest triggered abilities, to get back all of that stuff takes a lot more time. And one of the things that means is that on a journey, normally when you are traveling through the wilderness, you actually can't long rest. Now, that's not entirely true because for instance, the Wanderer, which is a really interesting class, the Wanderer class is sort of like a, a ranger, a wilderness survivalist. And they have a special ability that if they're in territory that they're familiar with, they sometimes will know about like a, a place that you can hole up for a long rest, like an old campsite or something like that, where you can actually take a long rest, even though it's not a sanctuary, which is really cool. It's a really neat way that um, that class gets to contribute to the overall functioning of the party. Because the Wanderer is all about this kind of like wilderness survival stuff. So they're going to have a really high wisdom and survival score. But also if they're in known lands, and even sometimes if they're not in known lands, but they're just in the wilderness, they get all these kind of special bonuses that um, reflect the idea that they are a Wanderer. Um, and that's not really a class that exists in base game 5e, because journeys in base game 5e are really not, um, they don't really function the same way. Uh, there is not a sort of a specialized journey mechanic the way there is in this. And we're going to talk about the journey mechanic in a minute once we get through creating a character. So you have your culture, 
which gives you a number of things. You have your class, which gives you a number of things, and your uh, class obviously has unlockable things per level. And you, you also have a, a choice. At level three, you can choose an archetype, and that'll determine kind of which direction within the class you're going to go. Um, and then you have backgrounds. Backgrounds give you a little bit of cool stuff. So they give you um, two proficiencies for every background, plus they give you role-playing stuff. They give you your distinctive quality, and your specialty, and your hope, and your despair. Hope and despair are um, basically how you get inspiration. So the idea is that when, when your character is in a hopeful place, if you play up your character's hope, the particular way that they express being hopeful, you get inspiration. And if you're in a despairing place, and you play up the particular way that your character experiences despair, you get inspiration for that too. And inspiration is, is more useful in this version of the game, in my opinion. Um, there are a couple of cool, for instance, the, the warrior, who is basically the fighter, um, they get an action surge ability, right? Normal, normal stuff, warrior gets an action surge um, and gets to make a second attack or, or a second main action. Um, however, in this version of the game, and I'm not as familiar with 5e, so I don't remember if it's a part of it, but I'm pretty sure it's just in this version of the game, that warrior can spend their inspiration to give their extra action to another ally as a reaction. So for instance, if you, you know, you really need one character to dash, or if you have a big frontline fighter who desperately needs an extra attack to take down the big baddie, and you have inspiration, you spend that inspiration and use your action surge on them instead of yourself. Um, which gets back into this idea that, in my opinion, inspiration, and there are a number of things like that in this game. There are um, also virtues, virtues which work like feats. A number of the virtues have special things you can do when you spend inspiration, basically beyond just getting advantage on a die roll. Anyway. So that's all you need to create your character is your character's culture, your class, and your background. And there are, remember, there are, there are a bunch of cultures and there are a number of extra cultures in those extra books that are behind me that are the region guides. There are six classes. There are no caster classes, no kind of true casters. Although there is a, an interesting note that basically says, you know, this is sort of our vision of how Middler should be modeled. If you really want to have a wizard, it's your game. Put in a wizard. That's fine. That's okay. Um, and I think that's really nice. That, that really shows, I think, that Cubicle 7 understands that uh, people are going to make this their own. And that's good. It's good for people to, to make this their own. This is, I wouldn't put in a, a caster class in Adventures in Middle-Earth. Um, because in my opinion, uh, anything like that should be an NPC. You know, you only really have like Gandalf and maybe Radagast and some of the, the really powerful elves who might apply to something like that. Um, and they should probably be NPCs. But if you want to do that, and you got the base 5e rules, you can totally put in caster classes. Anyway, then we have equipment. Um, the equipment list is pretty normal. There's a couple of special things. Um, 
the equipment list is a little pared down from the base 5e so for instance there's no uh, there's a little discussion in there too about kind of what tolkien includes and what he doesn't include and how the weapons that he includes are and armor that he includes are basically based on dark ages europe um and so for instance in in the actual writings there's no evidence of plate armor there's there's heavy mail is the heaviest that it gets and so the armor list covers everything that you would expect but the heaviest it gets is a a heavy reinforced mail essentially um weapons similarly there's there's no halberd on the weapon list um because there aren't described halberds in the the books um and there's a, a neat section that says you know there could be halberds in your world you know, if you meet Easterlings, Easterlings might use halberds, and you could totally include that. Or if you don't care about or are not, or your your opinion about the um, the story is a little bit different, you could totally include halberds in your game. This is just Cubicle 7 saying, this is just sort of our opinion about adapting a particular set of books and their particular flavor and tone and theme to role-playing with the fifth edition rules that that 5e at the top of adventures in middle earth um the only special the the really special equipment is that there's a sword that does 1d8 damage that is finesse um basically to reflect elves in my opinion that elves use broadswords in Tolkien's Legendarium, so they um, they get a finesse sword. And then there's also, so in the item section, there's also cultural heirlooms. Cultural heirlooms are really cool. Um, they're basically special items that you can get as a part of your culture. Once you, once you have done enough kind of heroic stuff to be recognized, you could be um, bestowed a cultural heirloom you know, a, an ancient sword or axe or something, or a piece of armor, or something a little less um, flashy. You know, an elven cloak from Lorien would be pretty useful in a number of situations. Less flashy than a sword, but uh, pretty, pretty effective. All right, now we get to sort of the different mechanics of Adventures in Middle-Earth. And there are basically... Um, uh, there are essentially four chapters dedicated to these mechanics. So the first one is journeys. The way journeys work, you map out the journey on the map and you figure out the peril rating and stuff. And the journey basically comes down to a series of, there's an embarkation role, which is how do you start out? There's a series of event roles, um, generally as few as one event on a journey and as many as like five or six um, more events for more difficult lands that you're passing through and when you're passing through places where you have to move more slowly and more events for longer journeys. So the, the journey events range from kind of traditional random encounters where, you know, you run into a pack of orcs and you have to fight. Um, but more of them are kind of role-playing things. So there'll be things, for instance, in our, um, our first adventure in the Wilderland Adventures, um, the uh, one of the random events was finding like a, a a little bit of a piece of like elven jewelry or something um, that had been crafted very very long ago, and the players had to make a wisdom saving throw 
in order to kind of um, correctly interpret that. Basically, if they made their wisdom saving throw, they felt better. They were sort of like, oh, look at the beauty of the world encapsulated in this piece of elven jewelry that we found in Mirkwood. If they fail their wisdom saving throw, then they're despairing. And they're sort of saying, like, look at all the beauty that has been lost in the world over the course of the ages. You know, the way in which so much kind of craftsmanship and beauty and art and all these wonderful things have been lost. And they gain some points of shadow to reflect them kind of despairing and falling into darkness on some level. Not, not falling into darkness in a big way, but in a small way. And that's kind of the, the next section is about shadow. So you roll your embarkation, you roll your random events, and then finally you roll your arrival. And your arrival is basically just what's sort of the situation where when you arrive um, and how do you feel and all that sort of stuff. And these have kind of cascading results. So if you roll really well in your embarkation, you might have advantage on journey event rolls. Um, and you get you get modifiers based on your character's skills. So for instance, on the most recent journey in um, the second adventure in Wilderland Adventures, um, they originally had three players and then my dad was able to rejoin and he's the fourth player and he's playing a wanderer. Wanderer gives big bonuses as the guide. So they were actually rolling instead of a 1d12 minus one, they were rolling a 1d12 plus one for their um, embarkation roll, which means they're more likely to get the high results that are good, which means that they're more likely to be better equipped for the journey events that they go on, um, which means they're more likely to uh, do well. But it's obviously still pretty swingy, so there's a lot of room for things to go wrong or things to go right. It really depends on partly the luck of the die and partly the skill. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a in my opinion it's a really cool system. I don't think it is quite as really the way that the one ring handles journeys is just wonderfully elegant and um in my opinion really excellent for modeling the journeys in Tolkien. This is a really good version of that. Not quite as perfect as the one ring in my opinion and that's kind of my my final say about adventures in middle earth as a whole is that it is not quite as perfect as a one ring but if you already know 5e this is really pretty easy to get into um and if your preferred rule set is 5e easy to get into one ring you have to deal with funky dice and you have to deal with a a more kind of board gamey, heavily structured approach to a lot of things. This is a lot easier to improvise things. Um, so in my opinion, that's this, this, I think adventures in middle earth is a really good game that is not quite as perfect as the one ring basically. Um, but it's still really good. Totally worth playing simpler than the one ring. It doesn't use funky dice. Doesn't use some of the kind of funky mechanics of the one ring. So if you're not into those funky mechanics, if you already know you like 5e, this is a pretty great way to play adventures in middle earth. Anyway, journeys we covered. The next section is shadow. Shadow is really interesting. Shadow is, um, the gradual buildup of 
shadow in the character. It's the way that the character gradually succumbs to the shadow. And one of the ideas is that the character... Um, Characters are worn down by adventuring. Adventuring is not an easy life, and they're worn down by the shadow. Um, and they gradually build up shadow points until they get to their wisdom level, at which point they have a chance of a bout of madness if they um, fail another shadow test. Um, and if they have a bout of madness, that's basically that's when Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo. Right. That's when the character's kind of ideals and goals and personality is so totally warped by the shadow for at least just a moment that they do something that is not out of character, but is sort of the worst possible interpretation of their character. Right. Boromir is a good person for the most part, but he is also kind of proud and he is... Uh, violent or, or capable of violence and all that sort of stuff. And him trying to take the ring is him being corrupted by the shadow of the ring and of Sauron. And the way that that manifests is particular to Boromir's character, right? That's sort of the idea. In, in here, that's the way it works too. In Adventures in Middle-Earth, um, shadow is particular to your character. It is what happens when the sort of nasty, dark side of your character's virtues comes out. That's a bout of madness. And the GM takes over your character for the duration of the bout of madness. Um, and there's, there's lists of different kind of sources of corruption, things that um, you might do um, because uh, might cause corruption, might cause you to take shadow points. Um, and gradually the idea is that as a character has, if they have multiple bouts of madness, they may eventually get to the point where they're just too broken to really continue as a PC. Um, I think in, in the One Ring, it's their fourth or fifth bout of madness. In this, I'm pretty sure it's the same, but I don't remember for certain. Um, Anyway, that's Shadow. Audiences. Audiences are basically how you interact with powerful people. And um, essentially what it comes down to in this is there's an introduction role, which is your character kind of talking to this person and saying, here's who I am and here's kind of what I want. And then you role play out the, the sort of talky-talky stuff and have the character say, like, you know, Yes, Thranduil, we're here to ask you to send an army to aid the woodmen of Woodman Town, that sort of thing. And then, based on the outcome of the, uh, the original introduction role, and based on the relationship between the player characters and the um, particular important person, the important personage in Middle-earth, you roll again to see how the audience went. Um, and it's pretty cool in the sense that there's a lot of, especially in the adventures, there's a lot of um, room for kind of partial success and degrees of success. So like it'll be something like, you know, a DC 11 persuasion, a charisma persuasion check um, 
based on the fact that you know your your character is known to this person as a hero but you're not from their culture necessarily you introduce yourself well but you need to to you still you know there's a chance that they might say no um, because they're a busy person and they've got lots of other concerns and Thranduil might not want to send his army to help the Woodman Town because there are orcs in northern Mirkwood. So you roll for that. If you just beat the DC, you know, maybe Thranduil sends, you know, uh, a couple of patrols. You beat the DC by like six or eight, Thranduil is going to bring his royal guard and he himself is going to come down and deal with the shit that is going on in Woodman Town. That's the sort of thing that audiences are for. Um, it's a really interesting system. It is, um, again, based on a system in the One Ring that I think works a little better to reflect the complexity of negotiation and discussion in Tolkien's works. Um, but it works pretty well for Adventures in Middle-Earth. The, the audience system is uh, worth playing with, in my opinion. Even though some people, some people, some people will really dislike the audience system, and that's kind of one of the one of the other takeaways for Adventures in Middle Earth and the One Ring. If you are a player or your group really hates roll to talk, you will dislike the audience system. The audience system is a lot of roll to talk. Um, you you uh, especially in the One Ring, but even in Adventures in Middle Earth, there's a fair bit of roll to talk um so if you're one of those groups that's like we don't need to roll we can just you know role play out the scene and uh the gm will adjudicate based on their opinion about the um the the personality and opinions of the characters that we're talking to um if you feel like that audiences are not going to be for you and then finally we have the fellowship phase that's the last section of the table of contents all the way down here. And the fellowship phase is essentially recovery. Um, it is also a chance for the players to kind of describe what they are doing or what they want to do with their time. So the idea is that the adventuring phase is GM driven. The fellowship phase is player driven. And the players can say, you know, I want to go to Lake Town and I want to rest up and, you know, compose songs to recover some shadow. And that's, that's one of the things you can do in the fellowship phase. There are a number of things you can do. One of them is recover from shadow. You can also recover from levels of exhaustion. You can also um, open up a sanctuary by trying to gain a, or gain a patron by basically doing an audience with an important personage in Middle-earth. Um, and there's some other things you can do too. Um, the, the supplemental books over here have some uh, cool extra things you can do during fellowship phase um, in addition to some of the other sort of special rules that they have. But anyway, that is essentially the Adventures in Middle-Earth Player's Guide. It's a guide to the Wilderland, an overview of what's in the book, a set of heroic cultures to play as, a set of six classes to play as, a set of backgrounds to play as, um, oh, and then I didn't cover virtues. Virtues are basically like feats. You get them at 4th and 8th and 12th level and on from there like that. Um, and virtues 
give special. They are cultural related. There are some generic virtues that you can get as a member of any culture, but many of the virtues are culturally related. Um, and so they're based on your character's kind of particular culture in the world. So for instance, the, the Dunedain have a really cool one where they can, um, you know, it's called Royalty Revealed, and it's basically Aragorn drawing Anduril and shouting Elendil and terrifying the orcs, and it's awesome when it happens in-game. A, a Dunedain can take the cultural virtue Royalty Revealed, and they, you know, draw their ancestral sword, and they shout Elendil, and uh, all the orcs cower in fear and things like that, and it, it's just such a great uh, moment. Some of the cultural virtues are a lot less interesting than that, unfortunately. So, like, there's a burning one that gives plus one strength. And, and, and it changes your encumbrance a little bit. And it's like, oh, that's, that's a lot less exciting. Useful sometimes. You know, if you're at 17 strength and you go to 18 strength, useful to have that plus one strength, but not as exciting. Uh, the bardings have one called Swordmaster that raises your AC by two when you're using a sword. Um... Similar sort of thing. Useful, very useful to have plus two AC, especially if you're, uh, you know, if you've already got a high AC and you can get that plus two on top of that, you know, heavy armor or high decks and carrying a sword, you can be a, a serious tank as a barding. Um, but not as exciting as royalty revealed. And that's sort of my only complaint about virtues, to be honest. Is I don't think they're quite as well balanced as the virtues in the one ring. I don't think, I think some of them aren't as exciting as other ones. And that means that it's sort of like a, a obvious choice sometimes instead of a um, interesting choice where there's, you know, a meaningful, meaningful uh, difference. Okay. The Lore Master's Guide. You also need this book if you're going to run Adventures in Middle-Earth, in addition to the Player's Guide. Player's Guide has almost all the rules, similar to um, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition core books. 5th Edition DMG you don't really need in order to run 5th Edition. Adventures in Middle-Earth Lore Master's Guide you do need, partly because it has the bestiary, um, and it has a lot of information about how to actually implement some of these special rules. So um, the first section of this book is Setting and Tale of Years, and this is a um, discussion of the setting. Uh, this Adventures in Middle-Earth is set five years. It's, it's supposed to start five years after the Battle of the Five Armies. Bard is king in Dale. Dane uh, Ironfoot is king in Erebor. Um, Lake Town has a new master. Bayorn is in charge of the Bayornings. Um, we don't know from the books a lot about the Woodmen of Wilderland, but they have you know a couple of communities and their leaders. Um, Randuil is king of the Mirkwood Elves. Dolgordur has been um, sacked by the the White Council. Um, and yet is going to resurge at some point, too. Um, so, anyway. Setting and Tale of Years. Welcome to Middle-Earth. And then there's a thing about um, all these different lands and um, discussion of the places. And a Tale of Years, which is sort of what has happened recently, what has happened kind of older than recently, and what is going to happen in the future. Um, a little bit of that. 
And then we have a guide to Lake Town. The expectation um, of the game, in addition to starting five years after the end of... Um, five years after the Battle of the Five Armies, is that you start out with Lake Town unlocked as a sanctuary, and you probably start the party there. Um, and that's that also ties in with the Wilderland Adventures that I, I showed off. Um, Wilderland Adventures uh, starts the characters near Lake Town and then takes them on an adventure. So if you want to use the sort of starting information from this lore master's guide and go right into wilderland adventures it works um, really smoothly all right before the game so there's information on um how to get your game to feel like a lot of this book in addition to being useful kind of mechanical stuff a lot of it is information on getting your game to feel Middle-earthy. So there's before the game. I'm just going to read out the titles of this thing. Precepts of Middle-earth play. Miles are miles. Years are long. All enemies of the one enemy. The long defeat in a fallen world. And deliverance arrives as all seems lost. And all those things seem to me to be totally fitting in with the kind of ethos of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, a little more so the Lord of the Rings in some cases than the Hobbit. Obviously the kind of large history isn't as present in the Hobbit. Um, and the kind of long defeat, long defeat, I believe is from a speech by Galadriel in particular. Anyway, um, adventuring phase, the adventuring rules, it basically talks about, um, Again, how to get your game to feel like a Middle-earth game. And then some stuff like there's the description of the rests, how long rests have to be in sanctuaries and they have to be for like a week. Um, there's the discussion of levels of exhaustion, how to use inspiration effectively, you know, how often should you get it, give it out um, and make sure you're giving it out for good role-playing, all of that sort of stuff. Um, Journeys expanded. There's more information on from the GM side what you need to know for journeys. So, for instance, there's a um, generic table that has all of the journey, the embarkation and the journey events and the uh, arrival rules with just their mechanical benefits um, or malices, because some of them are malices. Just the mechanics of the thing without any flavor text at all um, for you to fill in the flavor text yourself. Um, whereas other versions of those tables will have flavor text. So for instance, in Wilderland Adventures, they have a version of all those tables with flavor text keyed to each adventure. Um, so yeah, stuff about how to run journeys, how to run non-player characters and audiences, how to create the feel. Because remember that while this is a, a hopeful world, um, not everybody is great big friends with everybody else, right? Thranduil imprisons Thorin and the dwarves, and Bilbo breaks them out. Um, this is not always, you know, these are all free peoples who are enemies of Sauron, but um, can be a complicated thing asking for help or trying to get an audience with someone who perhaps comes from a culture with a history that defines that relationship. All right, then we have adversaries and battle. And um, 
there's a description of um, types of adversaries and the sort of battle things um, you should think about, especially scenery and combat. There's a big thing about how um, in the books and um, to some degree in the movies, the environment plays a really big role in a lot of combats. And so you should think about kind of describing the environment in the midst of combat as part of the, not just as sort of set dressing, but as a real uh, living, breathing part of the combat. Then there's a bestiary. The bestiary has really um, got a lot of cool stuff. I mean, there's orcs, there's Mordor orcs, spiders and Mirkwood, trolls, wolves of the wild, werewolves and vampires. There's more creatures in basically all of the region guides. And there's some special creatures in the different um, adventures when like a, a special unique, like a, a unique white in... Um, the second adventure in Wilderland Adventures, because I've been reading that for my group, um, there's a, a white who haunts a um, abandoned, a, a ruined settlement, an ancient ruin, and um, there's stats for him in the Wilderland Adventures book. So there's there's lots of stuff. And then one of the cool things is there's a sort of mix and match special stuff that you can add to these creatures. So um, there's uh, creature actions and abilities, creature bonus actions, creature reactions, troop abilities, actions and bonus actions, especially strong actions and abilities, specific actions and abilities for orcs and goblins, specific for trolls and ogres, specific for spiders, and specific for wars and wolves. And the idea here, I think, is that you provide really unique um, enemies, and there's a lot of material given for unique enemies even on the level of like basic orcs. So there's an idea of like, okay, this troop of orcs, this group, this, you know, 12, 12 orcs, four archers, and eight kind of frontline infantrymen, they have sort of been training more. So they have a special troop ability um, that's going to define the fight against them in a way that a sort of bog standard orc is not going to be able to behave. Um, so they have some special stuff. And the idea is to create combats and enemies and encounters and all that sort of stuff that feel unique and interesting. That you don't, you don't have your, oh, it's combat again and we're killing some goblins, right? You don't have that feel. You have a feel like every fight matters and every fight has its own interesting kind of characteristics and stuff like that and partly as as a result of all that you probably have less fighting than a lot of other um, 5b games you know you do more um, journeying and more audiences than you do in a lot of 5e games and you do less less combat but when you do combat it takes advantage of this stuff right so you have you have okay so you know there's 10 orcs and one of them is a little bigger than the other ones. And so he has, you know, plus two hit points and plus two strength. So plus one melee damage on average um, to his, his average damage. So he's, he's just a little bit nastier than the other orcs. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot. But once you get into describing the sort of flavor, right, once you're, you're talking about the scene and you describe how, you know, there's, you know, a couple of orcs milling about and then one sort of stands up to his full height and you realize he's about head and shoulders taller than the other ones. He's, he's big and he's powerfully built and all that sort of stuff. And you have a real sense of like, oh, this is a world where instead of having, you know, 
generic orcs that you just throw out tokens of orcs on a roll 20 or something like that and you're like yeah there's some orcs um this is a world where enemies are unique and they have kind of personality and flavor and all that sort of stuff in a way that in base game 5e they sometimes don't feel like they have all right then we have a lot of stuff about um so there's wondrous, legendary, and healing items, so treasure and rewards. Um, this is a game where there's going to be quite a bit less money earned by the players. They're not going to go dungeon delving and find you know sacks full of gold coins. And in fact, they use silver pennies for most of the equipment um, because this is a, a world that is closer to historical usage of silver and gold, right? Gold... Gold wasn't really used as the, the sort of standard currency in most of medieval Europe. Normally you used silver pennies um, or even smaller, you know, portions of silver coins or um, other kind of like, you know, smaller stuff. But anyway, so treasure and rewards. There's some stuff about, you know, wondrous artifacts, artifacts, bonuses, Subtle and not-so-subtle magic, legendary weapons and armor, all sorts of cool stuff, you know, which is fitting, right? I mean, Bilbo, after the troll incident, they find the, the troll hideout, and Bilbo finds Sting. And Sting is a weapon that, yes, it doesn't really have a sort of great provenance like Orchrist or Glamdring, but it is forged by the ancient elves for of Gondolin. And it does, you know, glow in the presence of enemies. In the presence of orcs, it glows. So there is a sort of magical quality to Sting, even if it is not um, as flashy as some magic items in, in other games. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in here about doing, doing that, um, how to create a world that feels magical without having as much kind of number magic that makes sense as a as a friend of mine put it on twitter at one point um he, he described playing uh most versions of dungeon dragons and playing wizards in dungeon dragons uh with regard to the use of vulgar battle spells that was that was his words and i think this this as a system gives you a lot of material for having a magical world that doesn't have vulgar battle spells you don't have any characters who are going to cast fireball in adventures in middle earth as written you could put in wizards if you want to if you if you have a, a person who's really desperate to play a wizard a player who's really desperate to play a wizard in middle earth you could totally add it if, if you feel like that's appropriate but that's that's not really the flavor that they that cubicle seven is going for in these books and the next session, of course, is magic in Middle-earth. And there's, again, more discussion about how magic works in Middle-earth, how a lot of magic is kind of innate, slightly supernatural things, like, like the fact that hobbits can disappear really easily, right? They, they just have a sort of almost, almost supernatural, not, not quite supernatural, but almost supernatural ability. Part of it is cultural, and part of it is this sort of semi-magical ability to just go unnoticed. Um, and that's just a thing with hobbits or or the elves and their kind of uncanny ability to shoot bows sometimes or um, other things like that. And a lot of magic is attached to items, right? There's not a lot of um, 
big, you know, kind of, like I said, not a lot of the big vulgar battle spells being thrown around, but there is a fair bit of magic, especially in items. Not just the one ring, but all of the rings of power and, you know, swords, magic swords, or semi-magical, you know, is Bilbo and then Frodo's mithril armor magical? It's kind of a question. Is mithril inherently magical? Or is it just super, super strong? Who knows? And that's kind of the the flavor that we're going for in Adventures in Middle-Earth, or at least that Cubicle 7 is going for in these books that you are sort of expected to want to replicate in your own Adventures in Middle-Earth game. And then finally, we have a discussion of the Fellowship phase. Um, at the very end, again, what what do players do on the Fellowship phase? How do you guide them through the Fellowship phase? How do you make it feel like a real and meaningful part of play, right? Because this is a meaningful part. The the journey is there and back again, and that's what the fellowship phase is about. The fellowship phase is and back again. Um, how do you make that feel meaningful and real and important to the game? And that's what that section of this book is about. So um, the bestiary is really where the important mechanical stuff is that you kind of can't get away from. Uh, in terms of the lore master's guide, but it's all really good stuff. It's totally worth getting. If if you want to play Adventures in Middle Earth, you basically need both the player's guide and the lore master's guide. Both of these books, unfortunately, nowadays, both of these books are out of print. Um, I don't know how much they go for. I think the these two core books go for somewhere between 40 and 60 dollars each um which is not awful compared to some books that's about the sticker price of um the 5e books right sticker price on the 5e core books is like 50 bucks i don't think anybody pays 50 bucks for them but sticker price is there yeah each of these was originally retailed for 40 dollars as sticker price um i don't remember how much i paid for mine because i got them from amazon um, but anyway, if you are somebody who is into fifth edition, if you are somebody who wants to play middle earth with the fifth edition rules, you are just somebody who wants to play middle earth and one ring is not your flavor, then this is a great option for you. Um, it's a really good game and there's a lot of really clever kind of stuff that when you read it, it sounds like a minor tweak. When you actually play, you realize it really changes the feel of the game. Some of the big stuff is obvious, like journeys and audiences. That stuff is obvious. But some of the smaller stuff, like for instance, I on my podcast just recently talked about how much I love the fact that because there are no caster classes, there's no guaranteed damage from any of the player characters. There's no there's no spells that are like, you know, save and take half damage where you can pretty much guarantee to take out, you know, a weakened enemy, which means that a high AC enemy, you know, a 16 or 17 AC orc leader or something like that, that is hard to hit, is always going to be hard to take down. You can't just, you know, hit them a couple times to get them low and then do your, your you know, your ace in the hole guaranteed damage to try to finish them off. It 
always feels that the entire fight will feel more like a, in my opinion, more of a, um, well, it's, it's muscle-powered combat. And I really love, I, I've talked before about this, but I, I really love muscle-powered combat in RPGs. I'm not as big a fan of magical combat RPGs, and I think that's part of why I like um, this system so much, because this ties into that, of course. Um, but yeah, that is um, just sort of a minor tweak that becomes more apparent as you play. Um, in the same way, there isn't really any ranged healing. Um, player characters, you know, the scholar's hands of a healer ability, they have to touch somebody. So if your frontline fighter goes down and the orcs just sort of step over their body to continue the assault and your frontline fighter is behind enemy lines, that's a serious problem because your frontline fighter is going to be rolling death saves, which, you know, death saves are 55% versus 45%, so they've got a little better odds of surviving than not. But if you can't get your, your scholar, who's likely to also have your biggest um, healing proficiency bonus too, because they're, they're going to have high wisdom and probably going to have proficiency in healing. And I think at second level, they get double proficiency in healing, expertise in healing. So um, they're almost certainly going to be the best character to try to bring, stabilize an injured character and bring them back up with one hit point. Getting your scholar to the wounded warrior who went down that's going to be tough if if you can't end the fight right away, if you can't cause like a, a morale check or something like that. I play Adventures in Middle Earth with morale because I feel like that um, fits the uh, the flavor too. Um, and I actually use charisma saves for morale, um, basically meaning that, for instance, a big orc boss who has a bonus to charisma and a proficiency bonus in intimidation, he uses his intimidation bonus to keep all the orcs in line. But once you kill him... And it's all the underling orcs who have like seven or eight charisma. Suddenly their morale has plummeted and they're much easier to force them to break and run. Um, that's just how I do it in my game. That's not, I think, I'm 90% for sure. There are morale rules in the 5th edition DMG, but I don't believe there are any morale rules in Adventures in Middle-Earth as written. That's just the way I do it. Um, anyway, the point being, unless you can end the fight quickly or it's close to the end of the fight and you can maneuver your scholar to the uh, wounded warrior. That's a, that's a really dangerous position in my opinion. And, and the, um, the adventures written in the books, well, I'll talk about them more, but they really um, emphasize that this is a dangerous world. Um, this is a, a really not a, um, a friendly place to adventure in. This is not, um, Middle Earth, there's a reason there aren't many adventures in Middle Earth, right? Um, because it is a dangerous world, and the unknown is dangerous, and uh, you can get lost or just end up stranded in the wilderness beyond all of the dangers of orcs and spiders and all the nasty things that exist out in the wilderness, too. Um, this is very much a kind of points of light type uh, situation. You know, uh, the the points of light campaign idea very much fits with the way that it's in Middle-earth works. So, anyway, um, that was all about what's in the core books, the, the two core books, the Lore Master's Guide and the Player's Guide. Um, 
I'm going to stop the video here, and uh, tomorrow you guys are going to get part two of this, um, which if you thought over an hour was enough to cover everything Adventures in Middle-Earth, you were wrong, because tomorrow I'm going to cover all of the supplemental material related to Adventures in Middle-Earth that you can get and tell you, um, try to give you an idea of what's worth it, what isn't, that sort of thing, um, or what I think is worth it and what's you know, what you might not need depending on what you plan to do with Adventures in Middle-Earth. All right. So, with all that being said, if you want to get in contact with me, I am at Cows from Powis on Twitter. I am on Anchor, anchor.fm slash Pelham's Wasteland, where I do a podcast. And I am obviously here on YouTube doing Live from Pelham's Wasteland as a YouTube channel. Um, if you leave a comment, that would be awesome. Um, it's great to hear from you guys. Um, all of the regular, you know, like and subscribe and comment stuff applies to this video and every other video. And I don't say it enough, but um, a huge thanks to everyone in the Live from Pelham's Wasteland community who has made um, this so much fun to do because um, it is a lot of fun. And I, I have a blast sharing these games with you and playing solo games and sharing that with you and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and a big part of that is thanks to you guys. I would still do this if nobody watched or listened, but um, it's a lot more fun knowing that there are people who get some benefit from this. So um, a huge thank you to, to everybody who is a part of the live from Pelham's Wasteland community. All of my knights errant adventuring in the wasteland. Um, it's great to have you uh, on this journey with me. So, all that being said, I have been Arlen Walker. I have been live from Pelham's Wasteland. And I will see you next time. Take care, everybody. And uh, especially in these kind of troubled times. I, I really mean that. Take care, everybody. Uh, Stay safe, stay um, plague-free and all that sort of stuff. Do, do your best to take care of yourselves and take care of each other because that's, that's really important. Um, so, yeah, take care, everybody, and I will see you next time.